One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. You go to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You got Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Uh, then you got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. We're in chapter 3 this morning. The text is also in your order of worship in case you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we have about, we've got six to ten of them in the back. There's like three that are out right now on the back table. Go grab one of those. I want you to leave this place with one. Uh, that's our gift to you. Please, please, please go get it. Don't leave here if you don't own a Bible without one, okay? Look, we're in the middle of, a, of the third week, like I said before, of our, ser- our summer series called The Walk, where we're taking a look at what it means to live the Christian life. Like, what are the essential practices? What is it that kind of defines us um, as, we, as we live out a life? Because Christianity is a, a comprehensive faith. It's not just a set of beliefs. It's not just a set of propositions. It's something that's demanding. It demands our whole life. Jesus calls us to come and follow him, and it's a, a giving of our whole life. And so, what is that going to mean for us? That's what we're looking at. Uh, and last week we looked at the fact that repentance, which is a churchy word we'll talk about in a second, that, that the turning away from one thing means turning towards, uh, if you're going to turn towards Jesus, you've got to turn away from other things, right? That makes sense. You choose, you choose for somebody. If you choose someone, you're choosing against everyone else, right? You get married, you're choosing your spouse, and you're choosing against all of the other possibilities, potentialities. And so what is that going to look like? What does it look like to, to repent? Last week we, we looked at what it meant to turn away from our old ways uh, Paul called it putting, putting them off. And this week is the corollary to that. Repentance, like I said, which is church speak for turning from one way to another, has a positive aspect. You can't turn from one thing without turning towards something else. So that's what we're looking at this morning from Colossians 3, verses 12 to 15. So if you've got your place there, let's stand in honor of God's words, what we do here. We'll be reading verses 12 to 15. Friends, this is God's word. This is not something we picked for ourselves. This isn't just something that, that Christians decided, let's pick these books instead of others. This is God's word, which means it lays claim on us. In many ways, it chose us. Let's hear it in that way. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time we ask your presence, that you would come and speak to us. We're coming in this room with many different stories, many different backgrounds, uh, many different um, needs. But you are a God who comes into our midst and you meet us right where we are. And so I pray you would do that. Whether we are here in this church and we've been here since the beginning or we're here for the first time, whether we're active churchgoers or we've never darkened the door of a church, I I pray that you would preach your gospel to us. Let Christ and his cross come forward. Let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. Because Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I was hanging out with uh, somebody in our congregation last night and I mentioned to them what my three first audio tapes were, which um, I said after saying that, I was like, well, that really, 
shows you the kind of person I am, and uh, I won't say those to you because it's a little embarrassing. But, um, but, but what it does is it reveals kind of the, the nerdy, dorky side to me. And one of the highlights of that is that I'm a, I'm a sucker for campy sci-fi comedy, which is why I love the Men in Black series. Um, in the first movie, you know, the bad guy in, in Men in Black 1 is this, like, cosmic roach, which I think is just kind of funny just mentioning that there's a such thing as a cosmic roach. And uh, for most of the movie, he's walking around in disguise as a rather nasty farmer by the name of Edgar. And, and there's this hilarious scene in which his wife, Tommy Lee Jones and, and, and Will Smith, are interviewing his wife, and they're sitting there, and she's, she's kind of chuckling about the fact that it was Edgar, but it wasn't really Edgar. It was like someone walking around in an Edgar suit, is the way she put it. And, and I, I love that, because that's what's going on. Literally, the roach is walking around in this dude's skin the whole, the, through the whole movie. And I mention that simply because that's, that's kind of what the metaphor that Paul is using here in this passage. Uh, this whole chapter in Colossians, he's talking about this. Last week, he talked about, he talked about putting off the old self. And this week, he talks about putting on the new one. Putting on a different suit. You know, you've taken off the one, now put on the new one. So we look at exactly what he means by putting on. There, there are practices, attitudes, things that define us as Christians just as much as there were practices, attitudes, behaviors that defined us as non-Christians. And, and, and so uh, this morning, we're going to look at what this new attire looks like. That is the attire of faith. There's, a, there's an outline in your bulletin, as always, that's helpful to you. We're going to look at this, surprisingly, in three ways. We're going to look at why we're to wear it. Gym time, apparently. Recess. Uh, we're going to look at why we're to wear it, what we're to wear, and how we're to wear it. You got that? What, what we're to wear, why we're to wear, or why we're to wear it, what we're to wear, and how. Okay? Let's start with the why. Look down at verse 12 to see a new Lord. We saw this last week, and we see it again this week. Paul grounds what, we're, what he's going to tell us in a new reality. Okay? This is what he always does. If, if you're a Christian this morning in theological language, what we'd say is that he grounds the imperative, what we're going to do, in the indicative, what we are. Okay? He always does this. He doesn't tell you what you're going to do until he tells you who you are. Because if who you are hasn't changed, what you're going to do hasn't changed. There's no point. So he always grounds the imperative, what we're to do, in the indicative, what is true of us. Okay? He did it last week when he said these words, if you've been raised with Christ, then go do this. This week he doesn't use that language. This week he says, as the elect of God, or as the chosen ones in the ESV of God. Now, again, if you've been a Christian for a while, and I say that word elect, or I say chosen ones, it, it, it brings to mind some things, right? Some of you it brings a very positive connotation. Others of you it brings a very negative connotation. It might even make you a little angry. Uh, if you're not a Christian this morning, it, it probably just sounds weird. Like, election? That's what we do when we get new politicians. Why does that have anything to do with Christianity? Okay. Well, that word is pivotal in the, in the story of the Bible tells. Because quite simply, the Bible tells us, and you're not going to be surprised by this, the Bible tells us the world is jacked, right? What may be surprising is the Bible says the world is jacked up because we're jacked up. Like the, the world's messed up because we're messed up. We didn't start that way, but now by nature, everyone on the planet is turned away from God. Now, that doesn't always look the same. When I say turned away from God, most of us hear that and we think bad people. Like, there's this, and look, we all have different ways of defining bad, right? Like, some of us have very traditionally moral ways of defining bad. Others have more progressively moral ways of defining bad. Some of us just have certain behaviors that we're like, you know, uh, that, that defines badness. But the Bible talks about it less in terms of morality and more in terms of the heart, 
And so Jesus said, one of the things that Jesus said is out of the heart comes all kinds of bad stuff. And in fact, he turned to religious people at one point and said, you look real pretty on the outside, guys. You look like a whitewashed tomb. That's like going down thorn rows and seeing those big, beautiful looking mausoleums. They look pretty on the outside. You know what's inside? Dead people. And that's what he's saying, Jesus is saying to those folks. He's saying, look, you look pretty on the, in- out on the outside. On the inside, dead person. Because your heart's not right. And the, and the dude who wrote this book, the book of Colossians, knew exactly what it's about. Because this is a guy who was insanely moral and insanely religious. As a matter of fact, he was so religious, so zealous for his Judaism. This guy was going house to house, city to city, pulling Christians out of their houses, throwing them in jail, or even having them killed. Some of them, he had a hand in killing himself. That's, that's who the Apostle Paul was before he wrote this. And then he's walking on the road to Damascus. Jesus blinds him. He's like, boom, yo, you're mine now. He's like, I don't even know who you are. I'm Jesus, whom you crucify. And he's like, okay, what do you want me to do? I'm sending you to all the people you hate. And you're going to go tell them about me. He's like, Okay, like Paul knew exactly what it meant when Jesus said, look, all your religion, all your morality, it can't save you, only I can save you. And Paul said, like, uh, clearly, I can't see anything else, but I can see that. Okay, so that's even the guy who was writing this passage. So the issue in the, in the Bible, at least, isn't our behavior so much as the primary bent of our hearts. And the Bible says that everyone on the planet, every one of us, you, me, everybody out of these doors, we are all have a fundamental bent away from God. Our hearts are bent away from Him. And this is something that the Bible calls sin. I know we don't, what is that word? Fundamentally, in the Bible, sin is what we are, it's not what we do. Or rather, we do it because we are it, right? We sin because we're sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin. We're all born that way. Okay? You with me? All right. And so the Bible says that if we follow the natural bent of our hearts, we will literally end up hellbound, literally, and separate from him forever, for, forever. And so in another one of, of his letters, the guy, same guy who wrote this one, says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one of us who's in a good way. And then he says later, the wages of that sin is death. In other words, every one of us is in deep trouble. All of us. Deep trouble. But here's the thing. God wasn't okay with that. So the Bible also says that he is not willing to let us go our own way. And that's what this word that we translate either chosen ones or elect is all about. He's not okay with us going our own way. He loves us too much to watch us walk our way, run our way away from him into into the hell that we desire more than we desire him. He says, no, 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 you weren't made for that. And so what that word means, chosen one or elect, is it means that God initiates with us. He moves towards us. None of us on our own are looking for God. I wasn't, you're not, or weren't. Like, we're not looking for God. We want to be our own lords, our own masters of our own fate. That is what we are by nature. But according to the Bible, God reaches in, he plucks us out of our path of self-destruction, and brings us into our, to his family. And, and that only makes sense, because if we are by nature alienated from God, by nature, that he would have to move towards us. To overcome our nature. You can't do that. It's like waking up today and say, today I will breathe water. Good luck with that. You're going to drown. Okay? You can't change your nature. God can. He created it. He created you. He created fish. He can, he can, change, he can change things. Okay? But here's the other side of this. Because you see, we hear that. Some of us are listening to that and like, 
oh, God chose me. That's great. I'm on God's team. I'm awesome. That is like totally not the point. Okay? In the Bible, like, first and foremost, the scripture is pretty clear that God's choice is not based on your merit. How cool you are, how good you are, is totally on his grace. It's totally on what you didn't deserve. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, another letter that Paul wrote, it actually says that maybe God picked you because you're the worst. I'm the worst, the weakest. Why? Because it makes him look greater. And so it's, it's not just, it's, it's totally on his grace, not on our merit. But second, the second thing is that God's election, being God's elect, isn't just a privilege, it's a responsibility. And that's the entire reason why Paul puts it here. There is a status that we have been called into, but that status asks something of us. You still with me? See, we are God's elect. In other words, God's chosen ones. His possession. His people. He makes the rules. He calls the shots. We aren't our own anymore. Now that leads us to a new identity. Look down at verse 12. He says, as God's elect, holy and beloved. Now there's a ton that we have to say here. I've got to say it quickly. This speaks to how we move from our team to God's. Remember, I said that we are stuck betraying God. We're stuck with our natural bent of our hearts away from God. We're stuck sinning against God by nature. Our hearts are messed up. I cannot say this enough. Our problem is not primarily behavioral. Your behavior can look fantastic and lead you straight to hell. Scripturally. Okay? God isn't looking for good. He's looking for dependent. And you can't get dependent by yourself. That would be independent. Can't do it. But here, we are called holy and beloved. Now, when we hear holy, most of us think pure or really moral. Um, in, in, the, in the Bible, primarily, it can mean that. But fundamentally, it means set apart for God, right? In the Old Testament, there's this thing called the temple or the tabernacle. And there are all these articles like uh, uh, silverware. Right? There's like silverware in the temple, bowls and plates and all that stuff, and God calls them holy. I'm pretty sure my stoneware is not really moral. Okay? What that doesn't mean is that it's moral, it just means it's set apart for God's use. Beloved, though, speaks to a relationship. Right? If you're beloved of someone, like that's a great thing to be. And, God's, and, and Paul says here, you're beloved of God. It means in a right relationship with. So how can Paul say this? If we are all stuck in our sin going our own way, both guilty and alienated from God, how can Paul call us holy? If we're alienated from God, how can we be holy, which means set apart for him? And if we're guilty, how can we be called beloved, which means in right relationship with him? And the answer is Jesus. Because we couldn't get back to God. God came to get to us. That is why Jesus came. Jesus himself was holy, set apart, from his very birth, and beloved of God. When, when Jesus went down to the Jordan and got baptized, um, after John is pouring the water on him, the, the heavens open up, and God says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved. So he's holy, and he's beloved, but Jesus also died on the cross to bear our guilt before God. Remember, uh, if you've been here enough, you've heard me say these words, but I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to say it again. Christianity doesn't give you a practice to do, it gives you a person to trust. It doesn't give you a practice to do, it gives you a person to trust. And so when we place our faith in Jesus, we are given his identity. We are united to him. 
positionally before God, we become holy. We become beloved. Listen, listen to me. Check in. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've done or, or what you've not done. <laughs> the ground before the throne of God is level. It is level. If you've been really good your whole life, churchgoer, or you've been, you've been doing things that would make a lot of people cringe, don't matter. The ground before the throne of God is level because of grace. You come to Jesus and you have a new identity. You are holy and beloved of God. You didn't earn it. Jesus did. You didn't work hard to get it. Jesus did. You accept it by faith in him. And this matters because this is the foundation. Again, this is the foundation of what Paul is saying. If you haven't let go of your attempts to make yourself right before God or your attempts at trying to do life apart from God, please do not try and do the rest of this passage. It will only make you look pretty on the outside and hellbound. Please do not do this. We have to get the order right. We put on what we are supposed to. Be, not, we put on these things because of what God has done for us in Jesus, not to get him to do for us. Okay? If you think you can be compassionate, be humble, and clean yourself up before God, you are simply making the problem worse. We do these things because we have been made clean in Jesus and in Jesus alone. But that said, the new identity is an identity and not a fiction. And so we put that identity on. Let's get to that, okay? That's the why, okay? That's why we wear it. Now look at, let, let's look at what the clothes look like. Okay, as we get into this list, some of us are going to be thinking, well, why does he pick these and not something else? Like, what makes Christianity think that these morals are good and these morals aren't? Um, now look, first and foremost... Um, this is not a comprehensive list. I said that last week of the bad stuff. That's not a comprehensive list. This is not a comprehensive list, okay? But second, here's a great thing. Every word that's used here, when Paul says, go do this, it's all used of God somewhere in the Bible. It's all used of him. He's compassionate. He's humble. He's kind. He's gracious. He has mercy. And so, if, in other words, if your identity is fundamentally shaped by Jesus now then we need to go and look like him. With me? That's the way that works. And so all of these, why, why these are important to know that? Because they, they are indicative of God. That is all of Christian morality. Listen, Christian morality is not like, well, they pick these rules as if it's like somebody picking a weird curfew. Like, well, son, you, you got to be home at uh, 9.30. Well, why 9.30, not 11? Because uh, I said so. No, it's not like that. It is... We are called to go, and you heard um, Rebecca reading that thing about Jesus saying, saying um, don't, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't even look at a woman lustfully. Like, dude, that's rough. Why that and not something else? Because God is a promise-keeping God who looks on people not to use them, but to flourish them. So why do Christians do this and not this? Because God does this and not this. And anytime you divorce it from that, they just become rules. But they're not. Okay. Here we go. First, compassion and kindness. Paul says, put on, therefore, a heart of compassion and kindness. Now, a heart of compassion in the scriptures means um, being sympathetic to the plight of another. Oftentimes, it is synonymous with the word mercy. 
Having a heart of compassion is synonymous with the word mercy. It means looking on someone, understanding their plight, and your heart going out to them because of where they they are at. Okay? The word kindness in Paul's writings, uh, because it's used a bunch of different ways, but in Paul's writings, the ones that he's writing, it often means God's gracious acts towards sinners. In other words, it is synonymous with grace or undeserved favor. And so when he says a heart of compassion and kindness, what he really means is grace and mercy. Be merciful and gracious towards others. And so both of these words involve God's posture towards broken people like you and like me. Jesus looked out in the crowd and he had compassion on them and showed kindness to them, uh, who, those who came to him and yet deserved nothing. And Paul says, this is how we're supposed to be towards others. Why? Because it's the way Jesus was. It's the way Jesus is. He's compassionate towards broken people. So Christian, let me ask you a question. When you are confronted with someone else's brokenness, someone else's sin, is your first response one of self-righteousness or of compassion and kindness? If it's the former, if it's self-righteousness, if it's like, I can't believe they do that, from what basis are you doing that? Look, every time we look at anyone anyone. And listen, when I just said that, some of you had images of who I meant. I don't care if you're looking at someone who is really a self-righteous moral person outside of Jesus or someone whose life is a disaster. When we look at them, our attitude should be one of compassion and kindness because there is nothing wrong with them that is not wrong with us. We show compassion and kindness because we have been shown compassion and kindness. The second is humility and gentleness. Again in verse 12, okay? Humility is a uniquely Christian virtue. And what I mean by that is that nobody in the ancient world of which Christianity sprang up, no one would have said, humility, that's a good thing. In the Roman world, it was a term of derision. If you were humble, you were like dirt. Like Romans didn't think it. Look, in, in, uh, in the city of Corinth, which was one of the cities that Paul wrote to, there are, there, they've, they've dug up all this archaeological stuff and there are places where people have paid, they paid money to write honorariums to themselves on architecture because that was what was considered good and so it was like this is done in honor of so-and-so who paid for this and who made these new streets and who did all this good stuff and guess who paid to put that up it wasn't the government it was like me going and paying money to the city of Stanton to put a big plaque on city hall that says Rick is the greatest dude ever Right? That was what was normal. And, and Jesus came along and said, no, 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 you don't understand. You're going to be humble. Silly Christians. What are they thinking? Humility, however, uh, it, it, when I say it's uniquely Christian, what I mean is that Paul talks about this in Philippians 2, verse 3, when he says that, that he says to consider others better than yourself. Humility, look at, listen to me, humility is not thinking less of yourself. I'm so terrible. I'm awful. That's, that's self-loathing. Self-loathing is the other side of the coin of pride. That's, humility is not thinking less of yourself. That is false humility. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. It is seeking others flourishing without regard to you. Gentleness, when he says gentleness, that's like the opposite of anger, okay? Right? A synonym would be meekness. Now, we tend to see gentleness as weakness, but it isn't. Gentleness, listen to me, gentleness is dealing with others according to how they need to be dealt with, not according to how you think they should be dealt with. 
It is dealing with others according to their ability, not to yours. In other words, it is an attitude of deference. So then, Christian, when you engage in relationship with others, are you more concerned that you be heard, that your opinions be followed, and that your desires be met? Or are you concerned to listen, to defer, and to seek to see others' desires met? Listen, I... In my humble opinion, uh, the most prevalent place for this is in listening to others. Most of us assume that when someone starts talking, I know what they're talking about. I got it. Yeah, yeah, whatever. whatever. I, yeah, I know. Or, yeah, I get it. Me too. Right? That's a big one. They start, they're like three words into their sentence. I know. Me too. Like, you too? Like, I'm t- about to talk about this thing I've got on my back. Like, you too? Really? Like, no. It's like, th- they don't have any understanding. We... What I mean is that we are not very teachable. Most of, this, most of us in this room understand, think that we understand reality, don't we? And not just our reality, we understand everybody's reality. Humility and gentleness is a willingness to come alongside another, to learn from them who they are and what they need, and then to deal with them accordingly. It is come alongside someone and say, who are you? What's your story? What is it that you need? That's going to help you flourish. And then to deal with them accordingly. And friends, this is what Jesus did for us. Jesus designed us. If anyone could claim, listen, I got this, I know. You're like three words in, I know. Like Jesus could have done that, right? But that's not what he did. He didn't didn't pontificate from heaven. He came down. He lived in our muck. He lived in our mess. He moved in next door and he said, he learned from teachers. Have you ever, this blows your mind. Dude's a kid, he's growing up in the temple, and he's going and he's sitting at the feet of people that he made with his own hands. He knitted them together, and he's like, what do you think about Deuteronomy 12, 15? If they knew who he was, they'd be like, dude, you wrote it. Why are you asking me? He's like, I'm just, I'm just curious. What do you think about it? Like, that, does it ever blow you away? Like, if anyone had the right to say, I can do, I, can, I don't have to be curious about anyone, it was Jesus, and yet he was the one who came and lived next door to you. He lived in our midst. Don't assume you understand. Be curious. Don't assume your opinion on how to do church, how to do parenting, how to do finance is correct. Learn. The last thing is patience, bearing, and forgiveness uh, down in verses 12 to 13. These all deal with how we act when we're offended, right? Patience in the, in the Bible, literally in the original, means long-suffering. It means great suffering. It's like mega-thumia, mega-suffering. So it's, it's like suffering as long as possible, literally. Bearing means carrying the weight of someone else's stuff. You know? Look, if you're married in this room, you know other people got stuff, Right? You're hanging out, like if you're, they married, listen, if you're in relationship, close relationship with another person, you know, people got stuff. And bearing is about bearing the, bearing that with them. And forgiveness means bearing the cost of the offense for the offender. And these all go together. Christians often have two opposite reactions when being sinned against, okay? The first is like surprised outrage. I can't believe they did that to me. It's like we want to write our congressman. Somebody, somebody sinned against us. We're like, I'm writing a letter. To who? I don't know. Somebody's got to do something about this. Like It's like this, this outrage that we feel. And the other, the other opposite reaction is to go, oh, no, no big deal. No big deal. Dude, I just ran over your dog. Yeah, I know. No, no, no big deal. Really? No, no big deal. It's really fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. We're all fine here. We're fine. That's fine. How are you? 
You know, like, this is what we do. Listen, neither of these is what Paul speaks of here. Sin happens. You cannot, listen to me, you, and especially parents in the room, listen close. You cannot sin-proof the universe. I don't care where you put your kids in school. You cannot sin-proof the universe. Jesus can, and he will, but he hasn't yet. Okay? You cannot sin-proof the universe. That means that when it happens, we are called to patience with those who struggle, and it means consistently being open to relationship with them if they repent. Listen, that is what forgiveness is. We all need to listen really close on this point because people misunderstand Christian forgiveness all the time. This is what Christian forgiveness is. Christian forgiveness is not pretending something didn't happen. It happened. And it hurt. And what you do when you pretend, oh, that that didn't happen, no, no big deal. What you tell that person is, you don't matter. What you do doesn't matter. You have no effect on me. I am impervious to you. No, you're not. No, you're not. Christian forgiveness is not pretending something didn't happen. It is offering reconciled relationship to the offender if they will repent. And Paul says, this is what we are to do because this is what the Lord did with us. In other words, God's forgiveness of us is both the ground of our forgiveness and the pattern for it. What I mean is that we can forgive because we have been forgiven, but also that our forgiveness should look like his. And God forgives when we repent and not before. Right? Forgiveness is about reconciled relationship, not your warm fuzzy. It's not about, I've settled this in my own heart. That is not forgiveness, biblically. That may be an attitude you have, but forgiveness is a reconciled relationship. It is conditional because it means restored relationship. And you cannot have a restored relationship with someone who is still abusing you. With me? Okay. So that's, how, that's why we're to wear it and what to wear. Now we need to look at how to wear it. Okay. Look down at verse 14. Paul says, Upon all these things place love, which binds them up all together in perfection or completion or maturity, depending on your translation, okay? Three things about this phrase. First, uh, on this word love, right? It's really fashionable, especially in Christian circles, to talk about, oh, there's, there's three or four words for love. And you got eros, and that means, that means romantic love or sexual love. And you got phileo, and that means brotherly love. And then you've got agape, and that means self-sacrificial love. Well, listen, listen to me. That's kind of right. I mean, more or less. But it's not as if Christians went... I need a word to talk about Jesus. Oh, you know what? Great. Greek has this word about self-sacrificial love. I'll use that. No, no, no. Greek and Roman people had no idea what self-sacrificial love was. Nobody does. You know why they start? You know why we think that word means that? Because Christians started to use that word in particular to talk about what Jesus did. Literally, Jesus Christ changed the definition of a word. Because Christians started using that word to engage, you know what, we need to love the way Jesus loved. And so I'm going to use this word to talk about what Jesus did. No one in the ancient world would have had any idea what self-sacrificial love means. Because nobody loves like that. 
except for Jesus. So here's what it means. What, it, what that word means, what Christians mean by love, is to seek someone else's flourishing at cost to yourself. What it doesn't mean, what love, Christian love, does not mean is being accepting or approving. That is not Christian love. That is, that is cultural love. It means being willing to do what it takes to see another flourish, even if they are determined to self-destruct. If someone is on, I've, I've used this illustration before, but if someone is sitting before you, if you come across a child and they've got a plate of broken glass in front of them, they're like, I am so hungry. I can't wait to eat this meal. Are you telling me it is loving to accept them for their hunger and approve of what they are eating while they shred their guts? No, it's not loving, it's evil. Christian love is going, I'm going to throw myself on that plate and I know it's going to make you angry and you're going to hate me because you're hungry and you think that will feed you but it can't feed you, it's only going to kill you and you jump on it and you say, but I I love you too much to let you eat it. Self-sacrificial. Seeking another's flourishing at cost to yourself. And so when Paul says that love binds these things together in perfection or completion, what it means is that all of these attitudes, uh, um, a compassionate heart, kindness, gentleness, humility, um, uh, forgiveness, all of these things, he says that all of these attitudes are to work in the service of love. They are all in the service of love. In other words, when we bear with another, when we show humility and gentleness, when we offer compassion and kindness to others because of a choice, a determination to seek their flourishing at a cost to our own, then these things become complete. Okay? So let me be clear. Often we say, often, you and I may talk about the fact that we are bearing with another when all that really means is that we are afraid of confronting them on their sin. We let them continue in their self and in their other destruction because we are protecting ourselves. That is not love. Often we say we are acting in humility and gentleness with others and thus waiting to talk to them about Jesus, waiting to share the gospel with them when in fact we just don't want to be thought of as weird. We keep them from an encounter with Jesus because of fear. That is not love. We need to ask whether we are doing what we do because we want our friends, neighbors, city, and church to flourish, or it's simply because we just want us to flourish. Let me conclude with this fashionable attitude, if I can, and then run out the door. Look, look at verse 15. Paul says, let the peace of Christ reign in your heart. Now, what Paul is doing is reminding us of our status. Because the call to do this is intimidating, right? You ever try it? You ever try to act with, to, towards everyone with compassion and gentleness and humility and kindness? You ever try that? It's really hard, right? What we are talking about is showing Jesus to other people. How does that work for you? That's rough. Only one Jesus in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not that dude. And when Paul says to let Christ's peace reign in your hearts, what he isn't talking about is 
to, to feel warm, fuzzy, and comfortable, right? We think of peace, we think of comfort. That is not what Paul means. Paul is talking about shalom. And shalom in the, in the Jewish worldview, that word for peace means reconciled relationship. It means everything coming together exactly as it should be. And so he's talking about primarily a reconciled relationship with God. The only thing that will free you to do what Christ is calling you to do here and to embrace and to live into what Christ what, what Christ is calling you to do is to live into and embrace what Christ has done for you. It's the only thing. You can show compassion and kindness because you know, listen to me, you know that nothing you did warranted God's grace. Nothing you did. You weren't the good little boy or girl. And that's why God chose you. He had compassion on you and kindness towards you. Nothing you did warranted the grace of God to you in Jesus. You can show humility and gentleness because when you were an enemy of God, Jesus came to you and dealt with you in a gentle way. And you can be patient with others. You can bear with them and forgive them because what you have been forgiven of in Christ is infinitely greater than anything anyone has done to you. Anything. As we live into the peace of Christ and we know Jesus more by the Gospel, you and I will be free to show him more. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time, we just ask your grace. All of us, every one of us in this room needs the grace of God in Jesus Christ this morning. So I ask that whether it's for the first time or for the one millionth time that you would move in our hearts, help us to grow in faith and repentance, turn away from the old way and to put on Jesus by faith and then to go from this place and to live out that life before others, showing the compassion and the kindness, and the gentleness, and the humility, and the patience, and the bearing, and the forgiveness that can only come because of what you have done for us in him. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.